Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in as we continue our 2023 SSC Comment Letter Series, where each episode features PwC National Office Specialists sharing insights on the SEC staff's area of focus and provide insight into each of the top comment letter topics. I think just in general, with your non-GAAP disclosures, it always warrants a revisit. I know we've talked about the December CNDI updates and, and you know the recommendations we had coming out of that was to, was to revisit your non-GAAP measures. Um, I think that that should be an ongoing process. You should constantly, constantly be looking at that, not only looking at the staff guidance and to make sure that you're comfortable that, that the non-GAAP measure continues to comply with, with the latest and greatest guidance there. Um, but also to compare to other companies. That was Kevin Vaughn, a PwC National Office partner who was previously in the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance, here to share insights on SEC comment letters related to non-GAAP measures, including updates to the SEC staff's new and updated compliance and disclosure interpretations. Kevin has a lot to share on this area that's the number one area of focus in SEC comments, so stay tuned to get informed as you gear up for year-end. With that, let's get started. So Kevin, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you on, and especially for this topic, which I know is one that's very near and dear to your heart, which is uh, non-GAAP measures and SEC filings. And I thought before we actually got into the topic and why we're talking about it, et cetera, it's probably very relevant for our audience to understand your background so they can understand your particular perspective on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. It's great to be here uh, to join this conversation. Uh, I do love Gap. Uh, so to clarify from the start, uh, I do love Gap, but I, I do enjoy uh, discussions about non-Gap as well. Uh, my my experience, I, I came to the firm uh, just recently, earlier this year. Uh, and prior to that, I spent almost 19 years at the SEC. Uh, I was in the Division of Corporation Finance for a large number of those years. Uh, and that's the group that re- reviews filings and issues a lot of these comments. Uh, so spent many years uh, looking at non-GAAP measures of companies and, and seeing those those non-GAAP measures uh, evolve over time and, and also the comments. Uh, so that's that's my background. That's, that's, I think, where a lot of that comes from in terms of being able to, to talk about this uh, wonderful topic today. All right. Well, definitely good perspective. And I think sometimes we have a quote from the podcast and I think a quote that would be good for any accountant is I do love gap. So maybe we need some bumper stickers or, you know, that. So that was, that was a good, a good line there. So with that said, then this is part of our series on SEC comment letters. And again, the topic is non gap. And so from your sort of experience and looking at the information, can you just give us a broad overview of how this topic ranks relative to our other topics we're covering in the series? Yeah, uh, sure thing. It, it it ranks number one. I'm not going to bury the lead on this. <laughs> yes. uh, it is the top comment area. It's it's uh, pretty consistently been in the top area, uh, the top couple. Uh, but but in our most recent analysis, our updated analysis, uh, there were about 1,300, a little over 1,300 comment letters issued uh, during the 12 months ended September 30th, 2023. Uh, and about 30% of those comment letters uh, included a comment or more uh, on non-GAAP measures. Uh, so that was, that was number one. Uh, and, and I know 
throughout this. You, you'll be talking about some other other comment letter themes uh, as well. But um, certainly, non-GAAP gets a lot of attention from the staff, uh, and and we see it coming through uh, consistently. So, Kevin, just um, this is I'm asking you without you having had time to prep for this particular question. But so it's number one. MDNA is number two. Right. Is there a big gap or is that also a high percentage? Uh, I think th- those are relatively consistent, uh, pretty similar. Uh, over the years, they've kind of traded those forth, top right? spots. Uh, and I think I think overall, the two of those uh, are have a pretty commanding lead uh, in those one and two spots uh, for, for a number of comments. Uh, so uh, it is very close. Uh, it's not uncommon to see a comment letter that has, you know, a couple of comments on non-GAAP and a couple of comments on MDNA. Okay, no, so stay tuned question. for that episode too. So, and definitely, obviously, a very important topic, one we do talk about every year. But before we get into the actual comment letters, and you sort of alluded to this, but can you just share your perspective on why, you know, on the significance of non-GAAP, to your point, GAAP is the foundation of reporting, but non-GAAP has emerged also as important, and then why it's a focus area for the SEC. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's there can be a lot of reasons why management might want to present non-GAAP information. I think most commonly, uh, there's usually other things going on in the results, and, and they're not trying to circumvent the GAAP results, but but they want to present another view of the results, supplement those other measures. Uh, maybe there's something going on in the gap results that, that creates volatility uh, that the company doesn't think is part of their core operations uh, or part of their ongoing operations in terms of investors that may want to forecast out into the future. And so they want to call those things out and make adjustments for them. And, and then through a non-GAAP measure, present kind of this alternative uh, measure of performance uh, or, or cash flows, depending on on what it is. So that's what we see in terms of that. And and like I say, I mean, each company is going to have their own reason for why they want to do it. Uh, and and folks probably are familiar with that within their companies. Um, and then investors also, I think, frequently ask for it, right? They want to understand what are those drivers as well. Uh, investors often are trying to do those forecasts. And so they want to understand, not that those things aren't going to happen again. They understand they'll happen again, but they're a little bit less predictable and may not necessarily be driven by specific actions that management has taken. It may be by other things that are happening in, in the environment. So investors may want to see that separately. And then in terms of the SEC's focus, you know, the SEC's mission, part of their mission is investor protection, right? And that's their, that's very fundamental to the division of corporation finance when they're reviewing filings uh, across all comments. It's making sure that information that's being provided to investors is decision useful uh, and is also not misleading. Uh, and so when you go back to the foundation of the non-GAAP rules, uh, that's really the focus is that non-GAAP measures can't be misleading. And there's a series of specific rules that are put in place that cover that concept. And then you also have different interpretations that have come out from the staff based on experiences that they have uh, in terms of what's happening in, in the like in actual filings and, and comment letters uh, of things that they see in their non-GAAP comments uh, that might be representative of measures that are misleading or, or could be misleading to investors. And so... Um, that's why the staff is focused on it because they're, and they take very seriously their job, uh, to protect investors, uh, and, and they want to make sure that, that the information that companies are putting out there won't be misleading to, to investors. 
So then from the SEC's perspective, I know there is an important set of rules and interpretations that sort of I'll use for govern this. And so anything that you would highlight there to kind of put in context some of the additional conversation we're going to have. So the main way that they communicate guidance is through compliance and disclosure interpretations. And I know I'm going to just default to calling that by its code word, uh, which is CNDIs. So that's compliance and disclosure interpretations. Uh, so that's really the main the main way that they get that guidance out. Uh, and that's come out over the years. They've, they've updated those with new things. And so that's that's really the main mechanism that they use to communicate that. The rules themselves have not changed from 2003 when they first came in place. But the staff's views through these interpretations have come out. And again, that's that's in response to evolution of disclosures as well. All right. That's super helpful. So then you obviously we just talked about those interpretations and we know um, and we've previously even talked here on the podcast about the updated interpretations that came out at the end of last year. And so can you just remind our listeners about those updates? And then I'll just warn you, I'm going to ask sort of the impact. But first, maybe you can say what the additional guidance that was issued was. So there was a couple of new ones. And then and then really the big ones, I think, were updates uh, to existing guidance that was out there. So one of them is on adjustments that eliminate normal recurring cash operating expenses. Uh, so back in 2016, the staff issued CNDIs that, that talked about not doing that. Uh, really, the updates on this one gave more examples of how the staff thinks about that uh, in terms of what's part of your normal recurring operating expenses. And then and then also they, they clarified that that recurring doesn't mean every period necessarily. It can be at irregular intervals. Uh, so I think that's an important clarification on that one. The other one that gets a lot of attention is individually tailored accounting principles. Again, this is one that has been around for a few years, but again, as a staff has more experience dealing with these, uh, they issued some updated guidance uh, on those. I think the clarification there is uh, they gave examples of revenue, uh, but it's not just revenue. Uh, there can be other areas. Well, also, it just if you even think about the name individual tailored accounting principles, I mean, you kind of can't make up your own accounting principles yes. to maybe put that in plain English. Yeah, the, yeah. The anything that, that yeah, it, it's kind of anything that changes the measurement, you know, the measurement of an item uh, based on gap. And so if you're accelerating revenue or making it gross versus net, things like that are going to definitely get attention. And then another area is some of the labeling and descriptions. Uh, and, and this is kind of a fundamental one. It's kind of basic, uh, but it's one that companies get tripped up on all the time. Um, and, and so uh, the staff has kind of progressively continued to give more examples of the things that, that they think cause, cause labeling issues. And, and so like the easiest example is like a lot of companies will do EBITDA, um, but then they'll also back out stock comp. Oh, so it's so not really. It's not EBITDA as defined. So you need to just make make it clear that's adjusted EBITDA. And then there's also uh, additional guidance on prominence uh, is another area that got that's gotten a lot of attention. And that's both in regards to the reconciliation, uh, but also in regards to just the quantity of non-GAAP measures that you might present. Uh, and then finally, sometimes, you know, companies will, will argue that, that they've got disclosures. So maybe they have a measure that violates some of these things, but they have disclosures that help it um, and make it clear. But the staff clarified that disclosures can't make a misleading non-GAAP measure not misleading. Uh, and so, so disclosures can't overcome that. Yeah. I mean, we often say 
for just gap that disclosures can't solve bad accounting. So it's the same theory there yep. that disclosures don't make up for that. And so to your the point you made, these are continuing themes we've talked about before and maybe just kind of I'll uh, use the word codifying and putting them in one place. And I guess what I'm curious is, did we see an impact then in the types of comments and or I know you also review a lot of SEC filings. Did we see changes to how registrants are approaching their non-GAAP measures in response to these comments or these this CD&Is? Yeah, so I, I think companies are definitely always paying attention uh, not only to the comments that are coming from the staff, uh, the guidance is coming from the staff, but but also uh, just what other companies are doing as well. And so they'll look at competitors, maybe comments that they've gotten, because uh, a lot of these non-GAAP measures are, are meant to cr- promote comparability between companies. And so you might have industry measures that, that people use. And so if one company in an industry starts to get questioned and then they have to change their measure, uh, so some companies do. But at the same time, I think a lot of companies have gone through the right exercise to to look at these interpretations. Like I say, they've been around for for many years. The the guidance has and the interpretations have been updated. So uh, I think companies have have looked at that and and evaluated their own uh, disclosures and and maybe they've made some changes to some of those. But I think broadly speaking, uh, companies it's been more of an exercise of of making sure that they're comfortable with it from their from kind of a controls and procedures perspective. Um, but, but I think we do see in terms of the comments, uh, we have seen a lot of comments that focus on these new CNDIs specifically. Uh, in fact, it, you know, we, we looked at some numbers basically from the day that they, uh, issued the new guidance, uh, through September 30th, um, the comment letters that are released, uh, and, uh, about 50% of them, um, that, that talk about non-cap, non-gap, uh, hit on, one of like one of those updated CNDIs uh, and one of those topics. So in terms of like the focus from the staff, they are very focused on it. Um, you know, we've talked about it before. I think Kyle's mentioned this when he, when he talked about the updates last year uh, is that the staff kind of presented as this is just formalizing existing staff positions. Uh, but we do see that the, that the staff is very focused on this and the comments uh, that they're issuing. And so um, that's certainly a trend. But there can also be, you know, and the staff has said this as well, everything is facts and circumstances based. Uh, So they'll issue a comment and the company will have a chance to respond, lay out why they think uh, a particular adjustment is okay, is consistent with the guidance, uh, and the staff will evaluate that. Uh, But we also see some companies that don't necessarily want to go through that. And even though they feel comfortable with it, they feel like it complies with the guidance, uh, they don't want to have to potentially be in a back and forth with the staff. And so they might just go ahead and change their non-GAAP measure, um, you know, whether or not they believe that's the the better place to go or they're just doing it to avoid that. You know, each one's probably different and they're they're making that calculation on their own. But, but we do see companies, we've seen a number of companies that have kind of just immediately, you know, when they get the comment, just immediately agreed to change their measure. Interesting. So two follow-up questions then. Uh, so one of these, I know you'll, you'll have to speculate a little. And so I'll forewarn, this is Kevin's point of view. But considering that the SEC does not give comments like this is a great disclosure, then if half of the comments were on these, it seems like that's an indication that the staff didn't think overall that the these 
were adopted as well as they should have been or maybe considered through the lens that they were hoping they would? I don't know. Is there any sort of, can you speculate a little on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll offer uh, one speculation, which is that uh, there there is kind of a sense of the staff when they get these CNDI, when these CNDIs are published, uh, they will look at the disclosures with a different lens. Uh, and even though it is existing staff mm. positions. Um, so we have seen situations where companies just a year or two before went through a round of comments on their non-GAAP measures. Everything was cleared. Uh, the staff didn't object to what they were doing, or maybe they made minor, they yeah. made changes and the staff was okay with that. Uh, and the staff is now coming back post the CNDI updates and saying, Hey, how did you think about this? See this, you know, whether this is a normal recurring cash operating expense uh, and whether it complies with with that guidance. Uh, and so we are seeing some some kind of circle back questions, if you will, and, and the staff pushing on on measures that that they've previously not objected to. And that's, you know, that's I will say from process. from my former yeah. SEC role. Right. Right. That's that can happen. You know, I, I used to always say I always reserve the right to get smarter uh, and and to think about things in different ways. And so. Uh, I think that's a lot of what what we're seeing from the staff as well. And I think some companies are, are if they've gone through that process just a year or two ago, they feel like, okay, everything's okay. There's, I'll look at the new guidance oh, and see if it I changes won't. my view, but there's nothing compelling me. Why would I think that, that what I'm doing isn't, right. you know, isn't okay? Because, you know, th- this updated guidance was just formalizing staff positions, but I just went through a comment letter, I see. you know, a year earlier. So, so then it's almost, and I'll ask for more advice at the end, but it's almost for everyone for this year. end, even if you've gone through comments to re look at your non gap through the lens of these common comments, which we will get into. I just want a little more background first uh, to make sure that through, through these C, uh, NDIs that you really have addressed what the SEC is getting at here. So then my other question, I think it piqued my interest, I'm sure for many listeners as well, you've made a comment that sometimes, and I I know this in general can be true, If as soon as someone gets a comment, they just, I'll use the word concede and say, okay, I'm going to just change. And maybe in some cases that is a smart approach because you don't have a good reason for your individual facts and circumstances that this would be appropriate. But I guess what is sort of your overall advice to people when they get those types of comments in terms of how to think about it and, and maybe to make a case for themselves instead of just immediately saying, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to end this process by saying I'm making a change. Yeah. I mean, I, I, some of them are easy, right? Like we talk about some of the the prominence disclosures or the measure disclosures, like those are more cut and dry. Um, so like that EBITDA example, yeah, if, well, okay, you're not going to argue about that. Don't argue about that, right? <laughs> like, so, uh, you know, uh, but but focus, like, if you think of the normal recurring cash operating expenses, and I'll, I'll pick on that one just because that's where we're seeing a lot of a lot of comments. Um, it, you know, it, it's really like, how do you go back to that? How does the how do the adjustments impact your operations? Um, and and really focusing on that aspect of it, and and if you think that that it's not a part of your normal recurring operations. Uh, or, or, and also focus on going back to the very beginning, you know, this is about whether the measure is misleading. And so focus on, 
how do you evaluate that fact? Mm-hmm. And and yes, we're doing this adjustment, but we don't think that this is misleading. Um, and I can use that example for individually tailored accounting principles too. That's what the guidance says is that changing the recognition and measurement uh, from a gap to a non-gap that may result in a measure that's misleading. So, you know, the staff, I think there's some things that are cut and dry that the yeah. staff will say, yes, that's misleading. Um, so it's not worth arguing on that. Uh, but there's some where maybe there's, there's an argument to be made and, and you just need to lay out why you don't think it's misleading uh, and and put that from the staff. And and we've seen some of those comments go back and forth and back and forth. And the staff considers those. Then they, they take all of that in and they listen to the point of view from the company. Really important reminder. So I know we've jumped around here a little, but maybe we can dig in uh, a little to some of the comments that we're seeing in the areas. So you were just mentioning prominence, and I think you've hit some of these, but any Thing overall in terms of prominence or or types of things they're focusing on that you would want to highlight here? One of the comments that we see a lot uh, that, uh, you know, it, I, I guess, commend the staff, it takes a lot of time to do this, but we'll see comments where the, the staff will say, uh, we note that you present X number of non-GAAP measures in your filing. Uh, and those numbers sometimes can be very large. Uh, and so uh, presumably the staff has gone through and, and counted, counted each one of those. Um, so, but that the point there being, you know, if you're presenting 50 different non-GAAP measures, uh, you know, I'll just pick that number out of, no, out of the sky. Like if you're presenting 50 different non-GAAP measures, well, you're only presenting one GAAP measure, right? There's only the GAAP financial statement. So so by putting so much energy and time into your non-GAAP discussion, are you essentially pushing the GAAP information further down on the list mm. and, and putting putting the non-GAAP with so much prominence? Um, so I think that's, that's one where we've seen some comments and that's really part of what they focused on from the prominence. Um, the other one is, and this is, this is basic, uh, but we still see the comments. So uh, it's been covered before, but the reconciliation has to start with the gap measure. Um, if you don't start at the gap measure, the staff will issue a comment on it, uh, every time and that, and, you know, and companies will just, will, you'll need to change that. So that's an easy fix for companies. If they're, if they're starting with non-gap and reconciling down to gap, just flip the order of that. So that makes sense. And I think it's easy enough also for people to do their own count and to see, you know, there's a lot of benchmarking and things out there, how they compare. You referenced industry. It's also, I think, helpful to look at what others in your industry are doing. But let me ask you a specific question on just the adjustments themselves, because we've, we've touched on this a few times when you mentioned the fact that for a lot of companies, in some ways, they might be looking at this to, uh, remove volatility or for them to take out an expense that they say is, you know, non-recurring because maybe it's only once a year, which you kind of touched on that. So I, I think two two questions there is one is just how do you think about if something is recurring or non-recurring? And then probably very helpful would be if we have any specific examples that we see coming up more often. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in in terms of and this is a little bit confusing because the, the idea of non-recurring comes up elsewhere in the in, in yes. the non-GAAP guidance, uh, and there's some specific rules around that too. But but in the context of recurring uh, in in this particular CNDI, which uh, for those that want to go back and look, it's 100.01 uh, CNDI 100.01. We'll put and some links in the show notes. We always <laughs> recommend to go back and read yourself. So. Yeah. 
Um, so the normal recurring cash operating expenses, uh, they still don't define what recurring is, but but the clarification is that it can be at irregular intervals. Mm. Uh, and so so the idea, maybe it's once a year. It may not even be once a year, um, but maybe just in your normal kind of operations, every other year you're going to have this yeah. uh, this expense. And so um, so may, and, and I think it might be helpful to give some examples Definitely. that we've seen uh, through comments. Uh, so one example, and this has been coming up more uh, lately, we've seen it pop up in a few situations, uh, is litigation costs. Uh, and so some companies, um, you know, obviously nobody wants to be in litigation, but but some companies as part of their business, it's just a natural part of your business that you may be exposed to litigation mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe you have intellectual property and part of your business strategy is to protect that intellectual property. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Yes. right? <laughs> uh, and so you're going to go out and pursue claims. And so companies often want to back that out because they don't like if you're if you're protecting your intellectual property, you don't have any control over when somebody's going to try to steal it uh, or when somebody's going to do something. So um, those litigation costs companies want to pull out uh, and and separate out from from their regular ongoing results. And so the staff may ask questions around that uh, in terms of how do you think about that? Isn't this isn't protecting your your intellectual property, isn't that part of your ongoing business uh, or, you know, say like product liability claims, things like that. Isn't that just part of uh, selling products is, is that you could pot- potentially be exposed to that litigation. Uh, and so the staff will ask questions on that. Um, and this is the hard thing too. I, there's no one answer, uh, right? Cause even, even the CNDI says the staff is going to consider the specific companies, facts and circumstances. And so uh, it, that's one where we've seen we've seen the staff uh, push back on litigation costs uh, that companies are excluding, uh, and some where the where the staff has not pushed back on it. So, uh, you know, and another example might be acquisition integration costs. And so, companies at, at irregular intervals mm-hmm. might acquire other companies. Uh, and so, you may see maybe every year the company will do a big acquisition, or or maybe every quarter they do you know a number of acquisitions. And so. Uh, you know, that's one where the staff may ask questions, um, particularly about the cost, the cash costs. Cause again, this is a cash focused item, the cash costs that go into what that acquisition is. So, you know, maybe it's like legal cost or, or accounting cost or, or advisory, uh, costs, things like that, or the cost, once you've closed the acquisition, uh, the cost cost to actually put that business into your business and, and integrate it into your business. And so, uh, again, on that one, you know. If, if it's something that you're doing regular, if you're an acquisitive company, uh, you may want to think about if if that's your growth strategy uh, is to acquire companies to grow your revenue. Um, the staff may look at that differently versus, um, you know, in my mind, if, if you're doing acquisitions that are more just, you know, filling in pieces uh, throughout the organization, but you're still operating your core business, maybe there's a different uh, a different view there. All right. That's, those are helpful examples. So then let me. Uh, go back just to the sort of volume of comments. And I know that you and the team kind of dug in and looked at sort of types of comments and if individual types were up and down. And I thought this was very interesting to um, kind of dig into some of these numbers. So can you, are there any highlights you would give from that additional analysis of sort of within non-GAF comments, what types of comments we were seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, what we, what we've done is we've kind of categorized it into some different areas. Uh, And so 
One of those areas is the nature of the non-GAAP adjustments. Uh, and that'll include what we just talked about, the normal recurring cash mm -hmm. operating expenses would, would be in there as well. Um, so based on that, not surprising, that is up, uh, <laughs> consistent with what we talked about earlier. Uh, and so, so that's just comments where the staff is asking about specific adjustments. Uh, they're going to want to understand um, what those adjustments are. Uh, and another kind of nuance uh, or you know question that we're seeing coming from the staff on this is companies often will have an other category. Uh, and so the staff will want to better understand what's in that other category. Uh, and, and especially, you know, if you've got big items that, that go up and big items that go down, uh, but they net together to not really looking all that significant, they're still going to want to get confirmation of that fact, even if it looks like a small number. Uh, and so, uh, more disclosure, a lot of, com a lot of companies will just say, and we have other adjustments and they don't describe what those other adjustments are. Uh, so the staff will look for, for better understanding of those types of adjustments. The next category maybe to talk about is just uh, the disclosure requirements uh, for non-GAAP measures. So these are all the accompanying disclosures um, that go with non-GAAP measures. I think overall uh, it, that's down, um, but that's a more recent trend that that's going down. Uh, Previously, that's been that's been a, a, a higher area of comment, uh, and I think the one area that we do still see a lot of comments is is where uh, companies are required to talk about why they believe the non-GAAP measure is useful uh, for investors um, or why it provides useful information, uh, and so the staff will ask questions on that. Uh, sometimes that that disclosure can be a little bit boilerplate mm -hmm. uh, and and not really specific to the company. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen kind of targeted comments uh, looking for more information. Well, and that's almost like an opportunity for companies to make their case for the non-GAAP measure before they ever even get a comment. Because if you have a good, it seems like if you would have a good disclosure there of why this is important, then that's helpful to provide context when the staff is reviewing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's It, it should be it should absolutely be part of your your documentation internally, uh, and and um, yeah, and then that can be used as the response to the comment as well. Uh, right, if if you get the comment, but to your point, putting it into the yes. disclosure uh, even better, and hopefully avoid the comment in the first right. place. Right, and then also it gives context to your users too. So it's it's there's no kind of negative of moving past boilerplate for an explanation like that. Seems like so. All right, how about other categories then? So we talked about prominence. So that's one. It's still overall flat. I know we talked about it being um, it being a big area uh, recently. Uh, so it's just post not getting better. Basically. It's just not getting better. Yeah. yeah. And so um, and and you know I, I, we'll probably talk about this in other uh, podcasts as well. But the overall number of comment letters is increasing mm -hmm. as well. And so when we say something is flat as a percentage basis, the it's number of comments <laughs> is still up um, because yeah. it's it's staying at that same percentage level. Um, and then uh, the reconciliation, uh, just the reconciliation requirements. This is actually down, but I'm not sure that that's going to be a consistent trend. I wouldn't buy too much into the the 
that it's down. Um, I think this is one that the staff is going to continue to be focused on. Uh, and some of that is, is what you're reconciling to. Uh, and so a lot of companies will have measures that, that reconcile, uh, to operating income or net income or, or, or whatever the case may be. But the staff has been focused on, uh, margin related non-GAAP measures. So like an adjusted, gross profit margin, uh, something like that, even though the company may not present gross profit in their gap financial statements. Oh. And so the staff has issued comments saying, well, you have to reconcile that to gross profit. And some companies have said, well, but I don't have gross profit on my, on my income statement. The staff is not persuaded by that. Yes. You still gross profit is still the most directly comparable measure. And so, um, maybe it won't go up. Maybe, maybe that's more, it's just a smaller population of companies that might be doing that particular measure. Uh, but we see that, that comment coming. And through. I feel like I remember that comment from last year. So it sounds like, again, a place that's really not getting better. Yeah. How about, I know one we've talked about that you mentioned was just this labeling and identification, which this one, I don't know. I almost feel like as the comments on, you forgot to attach an exhibit, like it could be avoided. Yeah. So what are these, what are we seeing from, from these comments? So maybe this is one where there's some improvement. Uh, so companies are, are improving on that, but we do still see some comments there uh, where, and, and where there's a measure presented that is a non-GAAP measure, but hasn't been identified as such or isn't included. You know, there's the whole slew of disclosures that we talked about in terms of when you're doing non-GAAP measures, the disclosures that have to accompany that. Maybe there's other measures that aren't included in that disclosure, uh, in that list of non-GAAP measures that, that that disclosure covers. And so the staff will ask questions of, okay, well, but you also have this non-GAAP measure, so provide all the disclosures for for that non-GAAP measure, uh, and and you also need to make it clear uh, that that it is a non-GAAP measure. All right, and then last one, like I said earlier in the podcast, this is one that just for some reason fascinates me. But these individually tailored accounting policies are what are we seeing in that area? Yeah, so we do see uh, an increase, a, a relative increase in number so of comments really on this. Yeah, increase then. Too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it, it's just it, the staff is asking questions about adjustments, and and it it becomes very difficult um, because non GAAP itself is a company's own tailored accounting uh, measurement of of earnings or whatever the case may be. Um, so what we see there is the staff is pressing on. I think historically there's been a lot of focus on revenue. Uh, and that's where everybody has really focused their attention on mm. that. But we're seeing them ask more questions on other things. Uh, it comes up in tax uh, adjustments a lot. Um, it comes up with uh, leases sometimes, classification of yeah. leases or, or the way that those expenses are running through. Um, and companies may want to make adjustments for that. Uh, and so the staff will just issue comments asking, hey, it seems like you're changing the, the recognition and measurement Uh as opposed to what's required under under 740 or, or 842, uh, so uh, that's that's I think where they're they're poking more on that. Um, and and again, the focus is, you know, this is this is gap, right? right. Like you know, yeah, why? the FASB did that for a reason, right? right. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so making sure you have a good reason uh, for that and why it doesn't result in something. Uh, misleading and it gets you know particularly when you think about and this is where i think revenue was so popular is like this is a brand new you know it's not brand new anymore but but relatively it was it was a brand new standard and so you know how are you adjust you're adjusting for it like this has just gone through the fasb's process this is the latest and greatest model that we have really good point 
Um, so yeah. same thing can be said for 842 potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Kevin, maybe we, I actually should have started with this question because I find this very interesting. And I think it's probably yet another reason for people to pay close attention here, which is that we've actually seen enforcement cases focused on non-GAAP measures. And I don't, maybe, I don't remember, at least myself, having seen much of this before. So we are going to do a whole separate podcast on enforcement, but considering we're talking about non-GAAP, is there any highlight that you'd at least share for the purposes of this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I it it is. I think it it will fit in with the overall theme uh, when we when you talk about enforcement uh, matters. But but the focus that we've seen in some of the enforcement actions, part of it is disclosure controls and procedures. Uh, and so earlier this year, there was an enforcement case, uh, and and the case really focused on the company had uh, certain. Uh, we talked about acquisition integration costs. It was yes. consistent with that, and there were other costs um, that were that were you know based on based on the the enforcement order. It, it appeared that there were other costs that were going into that adjustment as well that weren't really acquisition related, uh, and so um, the enforcement case really centered on the company didn't have the appropriate disclosure controls and procedures uh, to capture what was going into that non-GAAP adjustment. Uh, and then, and then also to make sure that the disclosures about the non-GAAP adjustment were accurate. And so, they described it as you know we'll just call it acquisition integration, um, but but the actual adjustments flowing through there went beyond that. Um, and so the disclosures didn't match up with what was actually flowing through the adjustment. Uh, and so so that was what enforcement was focused on in that case. Um, and so. It's just, I think, the takeaway there, uh, and I think this will be part of the broader takeaway too, is yeah. making sure that you have good controls and procedures around what is going into those adjustments and that you know what's feeding into it uh, and that your disclosures uh, match that. And, and, um, and because, you know, yes, the staff may disagree in terms of something you're adjusting out, um, but, you know, it's much better to have them disagree in a comment letter because they see clear disclosure of it and they just disagree on the adjustment versus getting the phone call from enforcement. Yeah, no, 100% agree. And I think that's a great reminder. And we've given sort of other reminders throughout the podcast in terms of dealing with comment letters and specifically, you know, on the non-GAAP area, but maybe just to close things out, any sort of final words of wisdom Either as you're talking to, I know you talked to a lot of engagement teams, a lot of clients, like what are some of the things you would highlight that people should focus on for this year end? Yeah, I I think just in general with your non-GAAP disclosures, it always warrants a revisit. Um, I know we've talked about the December CNDI updates and and you know the recommendations we had coming to that was to was to revisit your non-GAAP measures. Um, I think that that should be an ongoing process. You should constantly constantly be looking at that, not only looking at the staff guidance and to make sure that you're comfortable that that the non-GAAP measure continues to comply with with the latest and greatest guidance there, um, but also to compare to other companies. We've talked about some of the comment letter trends that we see and, and some of the uh, things where we're seeing the staff push back. And um, just because another company changes it doesn't mean that you have to, right? But, but it's certainly would justify taking a closer look and making sure that you're still comfortable uh, in light of whatever, uh, whatever information comes from, from that comment letter exchange. And then I think, so 
specifically, we talked about the normal recurring cash operating expenses uh, as being a focus area. So certainly going through all of your adjustments and looking at it through that lens of what what would be normal and recurring uh, uh, in in light of the staff's guidance. Uh, and could there be a question there? Uh, and, and if you were to get a question, how would you respond? Maybe go through the exercise of writing that out uh, and, and figuring oh, out yeah. um, what would that look like and circulating that with people to say like, because uh, to your point, it could be your documentation and it could feed into improved disclosures in your filing uh, to maybe head off uh, uh, that comment. Uh, and the other point that I would make is just because you've gone through a comment letter process maybe in, in the last year or two, um, it, that doesn't mean that you get a three-year reprieve. Uh, the staff could come back and review your filing again. Uh, they could issue more comments. They could they could dig deeper on some of those things. Uh, and so that's why I think it feeds into the ongoing evaluation of what you're doing, always taking the latest, greatest information to make sure that uh, that what you have in there is appropriate. All right. Well, that's a great reminder and a great note to end on. So Kevin, so much appreciate your insight and thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.